Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome a very old friend of mine for over two decades uh, to the show. And although we have not caught up in a while, uh, my guest today is Dennis O'Malley. Dennis, welcome to the show. What is up, Jeremy? Great to, great to be on the show, man. And pleasure to reconnect. I got to call you D.O. because that's how I met you. So uh, hopefully that's OK. You've known me for over 10 years, so that that's the threshold. Absolutely. Anybody old school calls me D.O., so I love it. Dennis is the CEO of Caliva. They are the largest vertically integrated cannabis company in California. By vertically integrated, that means they are doing everything from growing all the way through to selling in the retail side. So we'll we'll get into a, a bit of that. But what I want to do is I love to ask people about their favorite sales or leadership book of all time. So we'll just talk about that briefly, and then we'll we'll wind the clock back to 1995. <laughs> sure, you know 1995 is is probably when I read my first sales book, and that was a spin selling book because myself and a friend from Santa Clara graduated and, and took the Xerox school of, uh, of sales training out in Leesburg, Virginia. It's amazing how um, some of those attributes uh, and some of that sales process still holds today. So I would at least give the nod to spin selling as the, as the first and most impactful book that I've, I've read in sales in my career. Well, cool. Yeah. So let's get into it. Dennis and I met in early 2000s working together at Gartner. He was a, a salesperson and I was a, a semiconductor industry analyst. So basically, Dennis and I would go out and you know go to companies and I was sort of the sales engineer, if you will, pitching the product and he would sign the contract or get the contract signed. So like those are the early days. But before that, you were you were selling printers. So like, what was that like? So first job out of college, I was knocking on doors selling two cent copies competing against Kinko's. That switched into you know selling a little bit more of a complex sale of uh, you know think of computer manuals and DVDs and that generally got into you know managed services of that where you're taking on you know full fulfillment services from uh, enterprise software companies and then that that led to some of the first e-commerce you know capabilities pre Amazon but the managed service on demand fulfillment inventory management that you had to learn and make up and innovative um, back then, you know, those skill sets and some of those muscles that you built carried with me for, for a very long time. But my first sales were literally copies for two cents and, and ended up being, um, you know, some long-term multi-million dollar contracts of managed services where anybody back in the day, whoever wanted a computer manual, DVD or software kit, we fulfilled all of those products for enterprise software companies and worked to be able to ship those things uh, at the quarter ends and at the year ends um, so that they can recognize, you know, pretty significant revenues every time that they shipped um, software products. So the business definitely transformed. Um, it's uh, still an extremely successful business today and certainly learned a lot over the path of those seven years. But many of those seven years, uh, you know, doing 50 cold calls a day and actually knocking on doors and getting kicked out of lobbies. And then coming back and you know making your actual calls um, before and after that. One of the big transitions that people have to make is that transition from the SMB rep to the enterprise rep to be able to go from the thousand dollar, five thousand dollar, ten thousand dollar deal, and then you work your way up orders of magnitude, right, from ten to a hundred thousand to a million, and so on. What do you think are some of the skills you've observed that you need to acquire to go from say 
you know, the $10,000 average transaction size to the $100,000 average transaction size? It was a lot how I think I related to sales as I was an athlete. I was never the the most gifted, fastest, strongest athlete. So I had to make that up in terms of understanding playbooks and offenses and defenses and trying to anticipate what people were doing and work on things like footwork, handwork, you know, technique. The same thing as sales. I wouldn't say it ever came super naturally to me. And I knew that I had big gaps in my game. And I think changed when I went to MBA school and, and the people at you know BR were super generous in terms of being able to you know fund that program at night. Most sales professionals don't always think, hey, uh, go to MBA school to be a better salesperson. It's generally you think about going to management or doing something else. But what I found is the more that I understood businesses and the more I understood business challenges, the better questions I could ask and better questions I could ask, the easier it was for me to get into C-level offices and stay there. And I had found that when I was able to do that, that's what changed the game for me was just, just go after the bigger problems. I get this question from that time to time from salespeople is like, should I get an MBA? Should I go full-time? Should I go part-time? Based on your experience, what would you recommend to, to B2B sellers who are early in their career? It's all different, but based on what you know people wanted to do. For a very long time, I felt that you know sales was a myopic place to be if I wanted to be a general manager and, and wanted to you know start a business someday. So that was, I think, the first impetus around why I went into an MBA, and it was it was super helpful. I, I can tell you, for me at least, going the part time route where I was able to take real life problems and and get thirty smart people actually commenting on them. And bringing that back into work the next day was phenomenal for me. It's I continue that today in some of the CEO alliance groups that I've been fortunate to be within. Surrounding yourself by a bunch of smart, motivated people has always been a you know huge help. Understanding everything from just territory management, which companies were doing better, which companies had money, who the fast-growing companies were who the importance of the people were within the actual companies, what their problem set was, what questions to ask, and then helping them craft solutions. So that was what changed my impact that I had in sales and, and really reinvigorated me of, of understanding what generating revenue really meant. As you've led teams, and now that you know the importance of business acumen and asking great questions. What do you do with your teams? Because you obviously can't send everyone to business school. How do you get your teams ramped up to be able to have those same level of conversations and ask those same depth of questions? The first thing that's the easiest end of it to go out and learn something is not theoretical, but to actually you know go out and immerse yourself in whatever prospect customer that you are going after. It, it is mind boggling to me how many salespeople sit behind a computer and a phone and think that that is selling. Unless you're getting out to traffic, you're going to their stores, you're buying their products, you're seeing their offices, you're talking to their people, you're, you're seeing where their products are sold. Unless you understand where and how you know, your prospects or customers make money, there's no way you're going to be you know, effective in terms of a sales cycle. So I think that's one critical aspect. The second critical aspect that you can apply, you don't need an MBA to know that, you know, really companies are either focused on, you know, rapid growth at the expense of all costs and, you know, revenue growth is a key thing or 
if they're pre-revenue or they're something else, whether it's a social media company or biotech company, they they may be focused on growth, but it's not in revenue. It's maybe in users or maybe in clinical trials. There's not too many different things that businesses do. There, there's only a couple things that these CEOs are tasked to do. You can almost break down every single company into what is their ultimate goal. And that's really those four things, growing revenue, saving costs, taking market share or growing enterprise value some other way. What are the strategies that they have, longer term strategies against those goals? And then really you sell against initiatives. So what is that person tasked to do to be able to contribute to those strategies? I've always found that the most successful sales reps really focus on those tangible initiatives and understand what the obstacles are for those tangible initiatives to somebody who's personally going to allocate budget against those initiatives. I'll underscore something that you had just said about info gathering from the people that you aren't selling to first. If someone tries to come in to meet with you and they ask you like what's keeping you up at night or a more tactful version of that, I would assume you don't have time for that. If they came in and they took the time to understand like what are your company's strategic initiatives and how does what they do dovetail in with those and couch it in those terms, they're much more likely to get time with you. It's amazing to me that people and salespeople, when they're reaching out, they just don't have an understanding really of how most companies work. And very, very rarely do I get a really informed email from somebody who's actually selling into the organization that says something to this effect. Hey, I've been following you. Congrats on this. Wanted to give you a heads up. I've been working with your team on this solution. If it ever comes across your desk, just wanted to let you know who's behind it. Thank you. And it's those types of things that um, I think are the big missing piece in sales today, because the reality is the decision is going to be made in about two minutes. I'm going to sit down with the CFO at some point. He's going to walk through a business case and say, hey, Dennis, here is what the VP of marketing is trying to do. Here's what the business case looks like. Here's how it fits in the strategy. Here's what the different options are. I'm going to ask a whole bunch of different questions. And then I'm going to go back to him and say, you know, Tim, do you recommend we move forward with this or not? Tell me why. Tell me why not. And he's going to say, yes, here's all the reasons why, or no, here's not all the reasons why. If there's any type of comfort level that I've done some pre-read or some pre-research on something to that effect, that vendor is at least going to get the best chance to have as much of an informed decision as possible. Now, obviously, larger scale decisions are more time. There's more involvement. But I'm talking about most of these, the CEOs just, in reality, never going to do anything but hear about your company once from somebody who's going to ask for approval on it. And if there's no name recognition, you're going to have a lot less of a time of somebody feeling comfortable to move forward with that. You mentioned, obviously, elaborated on the fact that a lot of salespeople really don't have that deep understanding of how companies work and how they make decisions. What's the right entry point? Is it the, you know, you often hear people debate individual contributor, first line manager, skip those people, go to the director or VP only? Like, wh where do you start? In terms of understanding who the right person is, there's no silver bullet, as everybody listening knows. But what I would say is, as soon as you start assessing and qualifying that buyer, you're going to find out really quickly if you're dealing with the right person or not. There's nothing worse than a salesperson following up to a buyer that's non-qualified 
the timing's off and all of a sudden, you know, you're bombarding them every three days because it's in your pipeline. Your boss is asking you every Monday. And because you had one open email, you're all over it. It, it just creates a bad situation. Every interaction, anytime you get somebody on the phone, I would think about your sales career, not just your sales cycle. And you're hopefully going to be calling on these same people for years and years if you stick to the profession. That gets lost on people sometimes. Do you think in terms of fish or cut bait, if an organization doesn't seem to have the maturity to actually be successful with your product, you know, should a seller then try to convey that they can help the company reach that level of maturity or is that a walk away situation? The salesperson's not going to be able to do that. I go back to Jeremy, one thing that you said that stuck with me on a, on a LinkedIn comment, you had said, hey, salespeople, especially early in your career, when you start to say and use I, you know, you're not nearly as credible as, as referencing your client successes. I think that's a great piece of advice. I get very, very nervous when, when I hear a salesperson trying to give me business advice. What I don't get nervous on is when a salesperson offers a couple of things. One is, hey, we have some industry experts or some people here within the business who we think you can add value if it's a fit for you. Or, hey, I had a similar customer go through a similar situation. Would it be helpful to understand you know, what their learnings were? If you as a salesperson have the autonomy and the time to be able to actually build a true business, that's the best way to do it. I, I think what the challenge is, is there's such a drive for software companies to, to make a sale and to make that happen on every month, every quarter, that the long-term thinking around you know, true customer relationships, those aren't built on you know, within quarter sales cycles. Those are built on trusted relationships where you've actually helped somebody solve a business issue. They become a reference um, and you can land and expand within that customer. So it takes the right organization. It takes the right sales leadership team. And so sometimes as a rep, you can't help that. But if you have a portfolio where there's some transactional deals, if you're really growing your career and growing, hopefully your book of business, you're going to really focus on those relationship-based um, cycles. One thing I noticed uh, about your background, and it, it relates to something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, is in your first job, you spent seven years, right, working your way from account exec through director uh, you know, you went to another job, different company, higher growth company, I guess, uh, where you then spent another eight years. And the thing that I've been reflecting on is I did some analysis recently of average tenure of early sales professionals. The number I came up with was 20 months in a particular place, and then they hopped to a new place. Was the seven year and then eight year thing for you intentional? Was it luck? Because it does sound like it was foundational to building some critical skills for you. I'd love to just hear your thoughts on this job hopping. I think of it as madness, but maybe it's not madness. What do you think is going on there? Definitely didn't realize and know at the time that it was unique out there. I think on a number of different levels. One is I was extremely fortunate to work for great people in both those situations. Uh, in BR and Gardner, I had two great sales leaders that I worked for, you know, almost the entirety of the time, a guy named Q Loveless and a guy named Pat Hoey. They were workhorses. They had great moral compasses. I learned a lot from them. And because we as a teams were able to grow significantly, you know, I had a tremendous amount of growth in my career for that. So what I found is sure the, the monetary, you know, benefits of the growth was, you know, was great, but there was something about a team aspect and building a business with those guys, which was really cool. 
every about two years, I had a different role. So I, I understand the 20 months in terms of people trying to go do something different. What I found, at least for me, is that you become such a more successful business developer if you can be effective for your clients. If you've been at a company, for instance, like a Gartner for five years, and you can walk your clients through confidence about how things get done and how this is going to work, and you have a you know book of business that so you can refer to them, it's a compounding benefit. So I just generally found customers really had a lot of confidence when you know you were internally effective to be able to get stuff done for them. Let's throw some love Pat Hoey's way. There's a similarity, by the way. So Pat, five years, first job, three years, next job, 11 years, Gartner, and uh, Salesforce, I think, six years. So like also staying significant time in roles, and he's now the uh, VP of sales over at On24. Reflecting on him, what did you learn from him? What made him such a great leader? There was a consistency of a rhythm and a high performance culture that he, he drove that just never let up. What I found, it was the consistency of that, which was the true workhorse on it. You got to put the road work in and you got to put the time in. And that ends up being that the things you do at the end of the quarter and at the end of the year are special and you get recognition. But that's not a you know one-off, lucky, one-time home run swing, right? That is a lot of off-season work, a lot of preseason work, a lot of just fundamentals. And and that was something that both, um, you know, Hugh and Pat really emphasized. But I learned a lot from both those guys just on every day, how do you show up, the professionalism around it, and just the notion that never gets old to get, get after it. After all my years doing this, I went and looked at the best performing teams versus the sort of average and lower performing teams. And, and the single biggest differentiator was simply that the, the first line managers of the high performing teams held every person accountable every day to an activity target. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that stuck with us is, you know, we had a mentor at Gartner, uh, Tom Kinsman, and, you know, his, his notion was always, you should have a choice, whether it's you're giving 10% of your salary and your, and your commissions to your sales manager or not. And that sales manager has a job to be, you know, worth that 10%. And I always thought about that. And I always, you know, put people like you and, and Pat in context of others who others would say, hey, my job is to remove obstacles. My job is to share best practices. My job is to support. And I really thought that that was just a really an excuse to not just work hard. And what I saw was the best and the highest performing teams were what I call very highly engaged, you know, pushing people to, you know, pass their comfort zone to do things that they didn't think that they could do. And so I always appreciated highly engaged teams all around me and people who really wanted to push themselves, reinvent themselves and uh, see what we were all made of. Well, you know, you had significant time under your belt in enterprise selling, whether it was software or services and ultimately reached CEO of a, of a MarTech platform. You've now gone into an industry that has a different sort of spin to it, right? Especially this whole vertical integration all the way from growing through retail. What for you has been the biggest challenge on the sales side or the biggest learning on the sales side as you've moved from the enterprise world into the cannabis world? It takes a lot of work to make things simple. And in sales, there, there's really only two axes that I still only look through one lens. And that's a you know two by two matrix of activity and effectiveness. How are your activities? Do you have enough of them? And how effective are you? How good are you at, at what you're doing? 
and that does not change at all. So we have a very high-performing wholesale sales team that goes out and does things that salespeople do, which is salespeople do sales calls. And they do sales calls on a routine basis. They report against that, and they look at their one constraint, which is time, and they try to be able to optimize that. So in that instance, it doesn't change at all. What increasingly happens in a place like cannabis, which I love, is you have to be authentic. There is no pretense around what you're doing. There's no gobbledygook industry type of speak. It just doesn't exist. So what I've learned and appreciated more and what I love about the cannabis industry is it takes you down to you have to stand behind your product. You have to be credible in what you do. And this is not an intangible, right? So there is no smoke and mirrors with you know, software that may or may not be implemented. We're selling a tangible product that consumers use for a purpose, mainly for pain, sleep, and anxiety. We have to build trust. And so for us at Kaliva, we really see ourselves as the most trusted name in cannabis. And our team of wholesale salespeople are certainly our market developers and our front line to build our brand. But the sheer notion that they're going to show up in person to those buyers of the stores who sell to thousands of consumers and patients every day, they have to do what they say they're going to do. So I, I really enjoy the authenticity and the accountability that our salespeople have on a daily basis. When salespeople come looking for jobs at Kaliva, how many of them are drawn by the lure of being in the cannabis world or looking just for a great job with a high growth company? We filter people out pretty quickly if two things happen. One, if they over-index on their personal passion for the product, it generally skews their, their judgment and their selling preferences in terms of our product set to their customers. And then two is if they believe that this is a green rush and they think it's an easy money type of thing. The, the traits that we really look for first are a natural curiosity to understand the power of cannabis and what it means is really the number one. Number two is, you know, the, the integration of cannabis into your daily life. Do they truly believe in the power of plant-based solutions and the power to be able to change people's daily lives? And if they have, do they have the skill set to be customer facing and manage a big territory, manage their time and be self-managed to understand where and how people are good fits for Kaliba and Kaliba products? And lastly is, you know, this is always the plus, do they have experience, you know, doing that successfully? And if it's not enterprise sales, have they done other things successfully? But in the end of the day, people buy from us because they enjoy the person that they are buying from. We don't think we are a sales team, right? We believe that we give people the opportunity to buy the best cannabis products out there, that they trust our service, they trust our product, and they trust their main contact. So I think those are the things and those are the attributes which continue to, to lead to our wholesale sales team to continue to take market share out there. Well, Dennis, it was just such a pleasure. If people want to learn more about Kaliva or kind of find you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, it's just, uh, it's Kaliva.com. You know, we're, we're always hiring great people up and down the state in, in a variety of sales and marketing jobs, whether it's retail sales or whether it's wholesale sales. So check us out. And certainly if you're in the Bay Area, we have a great suite of products that help people uh, enrich people's daily lives. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.